0: 12 reasons Christians don't attend sporting events. Number one, the coach never came to visit me. Number two, every time I went, they asked for money. Number three, the people sitting in my row didn't seem very friendly. Number four, the seats were very hard. Number five, the referees made a decision I didn't agree with. Number six, I was sitting with hypocrites. They only came to see what others were wearing. Number seven, some games went into overtime and I was late getting home. Number eight, the band played some songs I had never heard before. Number nine, the games are scheduled on my only day to sleep in and run errands. Number 10, my parents took me to too many games when I was growing up. Number 11, since I read a book on sports, I feel that now I know more than the coaches anyway. And number 12, I don't want to take my children because I want them to choose for themselves what sport they like. 12 reasons why Christians don't attend sporting events, said by virtually no one. If you were paying close attention to the satire, you probably caught on to see through the subtle humor and you made the connection. The connection between what Christians virtually never say about sporting events, but what is sadly said by many professing Christians about attending church more often than we want to admit. The main problem lies not with having personal preferences. Personal preferences are just being human. The problem lies when those personal preferences become passions. Passions that we demand to have satisfied. And then those passions become staunch beliefs and unmovable convictions and unbreakable patterns and traditions, which if we're not careful can become little self-made idols in our lives. And then sooner or later we tune out, listening to everyone in our life, accept those who say what we want to hear and to those who only give us what our hearts demand and friends because those preferences and passions and beliefs eventually will stand in opposition to those who may challenge us or maybe to someone who may even call into question these dearly personal beliefs we are faced with a crossroads of decision aren't we especially if we're being challenged by someone who might be exposing the truth of God's word to us and telling us we're off, telling us and proving to us from the scriptures that we could be wrong. Members of CCBC, how does God plan to protect us from false teaching? How does God plan to protect us from false ideas of unity in the church? How does God plan to protect us from unwise ways of decision-making? How does God plan to protect us from our own fickle and really selfish hearts, which leave us self-deceived? How does God plan to protect us as a church from using things like entertainment? To draw people, overlooking and ignoring serious, repeated and known sins so as not to offend anyone, and watering down our message in order to keep people interested and in coming. Love well, it, how does God plan, and not man? How does God plan to build His church through the means He has ordained? If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles provided, you can find that on page 579. If you don't have a Bible at home you can read, you can take that Bible as a gift from our church to you. 2 Timothy chapter 4. This morning, we're looking at the last chapter of Paul's last letter that he would write to his young protege in ministry just prior to Paul's death. Throughout the letters of both 1st and 2nd Timothy, the Apostle Paul has done what every good coach, what every good parent, what every good leader would do for those under his charge. Paul has led Timothy with truth, and he has led Timothy with love. By God's amazing grace and wisdom upon his life, Paul had led Timothy with God's truth and God's love, which had a profound impact on Timothy's life. Paul's appealed to Timothy verse by verse out of a heart of love for him, loving him and leading him by setting a virtuous example before him, as if Timothy was his own beloved son. Because Paul loved him, he reminded Timothy of gospel promises that he's already known, but Timothy would need to be refreshed by them, to stay encouraged, especially during times of hardship and suffering. Uh, Paul also had thoroughly taught Timothy everything Timothy would need to know about church ministry and everything else that comes with it. Paul taught Timothy the overall job description of a pastor, as well as the joys and the challenges of being a pastor. And within these two letters of First and 2 Timothy, uh, Paul would usher warnings for Timothy to heed too. Warnings for his own personal walk with Christ, but also warnings To others in his church that Timothy was called to shepherd. Sheep that would need ongoing teaching, ongoing leadership, ongoing protection under his oversight. But there would also be wolves that were disguised in sheep's clothing, sneaking into the church. And those wolves, Paul would tell Timothy, need to be confronted corrected, exposed, removed, and avoided in order to protect the church from sinful division and mass confusion. Now, Timothy had an amazing discipling experience, didn't he? I mean, who wouldn't want the Apostle Paul as your kind of, you know, small group leader, right? What are you doing this week? Well, went in jail, seen a bunch of people saved, almost died. How was your week? Timothy had been given a premier theological and pastoral education by Paul. And it was truly an amazing impact that one life set on fire for Jesus made in another person's life for the glory of God. However, Timothy's greatest lessons would not come by merely what he learned in a classroom or from a workbook. No, it would come from watching Paul's life. Paul's own example before young Timothy of what Paul went through, and he still trusted Christ, even amidst all the suffering he experienced for the cause of Christ. And that's precisely what we learned last week in 2 Timothy 3, 10 to 17. If you were here last week, I'll just remind you again what we learned. We we learned that we must imitate closely those who follow Jesus closely and stay this course for the rest of our life. And, And how do we do that? Well, we should remember and look for faithful Christians to learn from for the rest of our life. And we should be diligent and teachable students of God's word for the rest of our life. This morning, we pick back up in the final set of important instructions uh, Paul would ever give Timothy. Instructions on how he was to carry out his pastoral duties there in Ephesus, even after Paul was gone. But these are also important instructions that we need to heed to, brothers and sisters, for our families, for our individual lives, and especially for our local church here at CCBC. 2 Timothy 4, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 5 this morning. Please follow with me. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. This is God's Word. If you're taking notes, here's the main idea for this morning's passage. I'll repeat it twice. Until Jesus takes us home, we need the sound preaching of God's Word gripping our hearts and governing our church. Until Jesus takes us home, we need the sound preaching of God's word gripping our hearts and governing our church. Have you ever heard someone say, if you don't remember anything else I tell you, please don't forget this one thing. Don't forget this one thing from the grocery store. Don't forget this important date on the calendar. Don't forget this one bill we need to pay before we leave town. Well, For that's exactly what Paul's doing here with Timothy in these last task to complete section for Timothy. Here we see Paul largely just reiterate in one way or another what he had already told Timothy in other places in Scripture. But this time, Paul uniquely heightens the urgency Of Timothy's calling from God he raises his voice he raises the stakes by bringing to Timothy's mind someone far greater than Paul that Timothy would have to answer to that Timothy would have to give an account for for the life he lived and the ministry he carried out and who is that someone greater than Paul It was God and his son, Jesus Christ. Look at me in verse 1. I charge you. Literally, Paul says, I solemnly testify to you. The, The word gives the idea of someone bearing witness in a court of law. In other words, this is a serious and solemn exhortation. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Friends, before we see the nine different imperatives, the nine different commands, the nine different tasks to complete that Paul had given Timothy to do, Paul saw it absolutely necessary to sear into Timothy's mind two irrefutable and inescapable facts. Fact number one, God is always present. God is always present. Fact number two, Jesus Christ will judge everyone. Jesus Christ will judge everyone. First, consider that brief phrase Paul uses, I charge you in the presence of God or it could literally be translated before the face of God. It's a Latin phrase that some theologians have used all the way back from Martin Luther in the 16th century around the Reformation. A Latin phrase often coined as Coram Deo. Who's ever heard of that? All the Presbyterians raise their hands. And Ligonier fans. And Reformed Baptists. And the rest of you are going, "Mm -mm, I'm not sure about that one. Coram Deo, C-O-R-A-M, space, Deo. D-E-O. You might say, what does that mean? The phrase literally refers to something that takes place in the presence of or for the face of God. It means to live, Coram Deo, is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, before the face of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. R.C. Sproul once said, quote, to live in the presence of God is to understand that whatever we are doing and wherever we are doing it, we are acting under the gaze of God. God is omnipresent. There is no place so remote that we can escape his penetrating gaze. Paul speaks both of the omniscient eyes and omnipresent nearness of God by saying what we already know as Christians, right? That's kind of like Christianity 101. God is everywhere at all times. He knows everything there is to know. And yet we can forget that, can we? God sees everything. God hears everything. God knows everything. No human being can fully escape God's sight. No one. We can play hide and go seek with our friends and be really good at it. But we can't with God. You see, by nature as sinners, we tend to hide when we're full of shame. Think of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, trying to hide from the presence of God after they rebelled against him. Genesis chapter 3. By nature of sinners, we tend to lie and fudge the truth too, don't we? We don't want anyone to find out the truth about what we've actually said or done. And so what do we do? We rewrite the narrative on a story so as to make us look like the victim or the hero, when in actuality it may be the total opposite about us. Think of King David's actions when his lust and sexual immorality with Bathsheba led him to conspire and have his... One of his best men in his army killed so as to cover up his tracks. By nature as sinners, we we tend to fear man and care too much about what men think over what God thinks. By nature, we become crowd-pleasing chameleons, adapting and adjusting our behavior depending on who's in the room. Think of Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve disciples, and his dealings with the Sanhedrin with a little bit of money in order to betray our lord we we know where all this leads right it leads nowhere nowhere good this only leads in our life to an endless cycle of shame guilt and hypocrisy shame guilt and hypocrisy our life becomes a web of lies a trail of bad fruit A checkered testimony that we try to bleach out and blot out, but we can't. And until we come clean before God who sees everything and ask for his cleansing mercy through Jesus and his blood alone that can make the vilest clean and wash us as white as snow. Until we come to God on his terms, the filth of our sin will remain heavy on our conscience day and night. By nature, as sinners, if God doesn't stop us in our tracks, send us someone to confront us, expose our darkness with his light and his truth, and turn us around, give us a U-turn by his grace, friends, we will trick ourselves into thinking we can fool others and get away with it in the end. But friends, that sort of thinking in our heads only shows how far we've dug pits of sin in our hearts. We can trick and fool people, yes, but we cannot trick and fool God. That is a fool's error. God never needs to learn information. The past and the future is all present to him. Trying to trick and fool God is like a blind man trying to convince people he's an eye doctor. It's just not going to happen. That's why it's absurd and a huge waste of time to ever think we can live in sin and get away with it. What did Moses say in Psalm 90 verse 8? You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. Or consider again what Jason read earlier from Jeremiah 23 when God was exposing the false prophets, the false preachers who misrepresented their God with these so-called prophetic ministries and prophetic dreams. These false shepherds, these false prophets were preaching peace, peace to the people of Israel when in fact God was saying, judgment's coming, judgment's coming, judgment coming. You're in trouble unless you repent. What did the Lord say about these false prophets? prophets. Jeremiah 23, 23 to 24, am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? Timothy knew this about God. He had gotten way beyond his freshman class with Paul. He's been with him for 15 years. This man's got more theology than we could get in a lifetime. Timothy was not a novice. But just like us, Timothy needed a theological refresh button. Clicked on again and again, just like us. Paul, in essence, is saying to Timothy, my child, live your life coram Deo. Live your life as a pastor quorum Deo. Live your entire life, Timothy, before the presence of God, before the face of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. Secondly, Paul would hit a second theological refresh button that reiterated, Timothy, something he already knew as well about Judgment Day. But just like us, Timothy needed a constant reminder of what he already knew. A reminder that would help Timothy live Coram Deo. A reminder that would help us live Coram Deo as well. Paul told Timothy that in light of his pastoral duties right now and in the years to come, he must keep before his eyes that one day Jesus is coming back to judge the entire world. To judge Timothy. To judge his congregation to judge the whole town of Ephesus, to judge the whole Mediterranean world, to judge all seven billion people alive now and every human being that has ever lived. Those who have died and those who will be alive at our Lord's second coming, Jesus will judge everyone. Even for Christians, though Christ is not coming back to judge us for sin. All Christians will give an account of their life under the judgment of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 to 10. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So how do we know Jesus is coming back? How do we know it's just not a hoax, you know, a way to kind of put fear into people's minds or give them some kind of nostalgia around Easter? How do we know Jesus is actually going to judge the entire human race? How do we know that everyone in this room will stand before the Lamb of God, who is also the Lion of the tribe of Judah? Because God the Father authorized Jesus with this sovereign judgment. Jesus said in John 5, 21 to 23, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And of course, we're familiar with that great commission text that we've taught a lot on this year. You know, go and make disciples of all nations. What does Jesus say right before those marching orders to the church? Matthew 28:18 and Jesus came and said to them, "All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me." That's Jesus. And we also know that Jesus has been authorized to judge the whole world because God raised him from the dead to do this very thing. Listen carefully to Acts 17. It's a really key text on this point. Acts 17, 30 to 31, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. To my non-Christian friend, What are you doing with your sin right now, knowing that God sees everything? What are you doing with your sin, knowing that Jesus is coming back to judge you by his perfect, righteous standard? Friends, the scriptures are very clear. We cannot escape Jesus' judgment. Let me say that again. We cannot escape Jesus' judgment. We can dodge a tornado. We can miss a heated discussion. But we cannot escape his judgment. The scriptures tell us it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. But friends, take heart. We can escape his wrath in judgment. And that's only possible by trusting in His Son, Jesus Christ, who bore that judgment in our place. He already took on God's wrath against our sin. For all of us who would come to God on His terms, come clean with our sin, not to clean ourselves up. Friends, one of the greatest heresies of the Southern Baptist world is self salvation. I grew up third, fourth, fifth generation Baptist. I walked uh, walked the aisle, said a prayer. Friends, that's self-salvation. We're not saved because of those things. God may use means and he uses circumstances, but we're all saved by the same spirit, by the same grace, looking to the same Lord, adopted by the same Father. The triune God does not need us to save his people. Oh, friends, Jesus Christ in his blood can make the vilest clean, and his blood alone can wash us as white as snow. There is only one of two choices we all have. We either enter into judgment vile and guilty before a holy God, or we enter into judgment justified, sanctified, glorified, adopted, forgiven, redeemed, washed by the blood of the Lamb. I don't want the former. Do you? I want the latter. That's the good news of the gospel. Christ stood in our place. He lived the life we failed to live. He fully pleased his heavenly Father. He always lived Coram Deo fully pleasing to his father, before the face of his father, and the father was fully pleased in his son. And if we turn from our sins and trust in Christ, who died in our place, who rose again from the dead, who is now interceding at the right hand of the father for his people, if we look to him by faith, we get God's favor and righteousness credited to our account. And it's all by his grace. That's the good news. Jesus said in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, present tense. He does not come into judgment, but has past, past tense with present and future implications from death to life. Fellow Christian, how are you doing lately with keeping those two facts in mind that God sees everything, and that judgment day is coming. How are you doing? In a given week, keeping these two facts on the dashboard of your life, God is present, and Jesus will judge the whole world. How are you doing keeping these on your mind as you raise your kids? How are you doing And keeping this on your mind when you're discipling other believers, evangelizing unbelievers, enduring, suffering, waiting on God for answered prayer, leading and serving your spouse, working in your job, what you talk about with your friends, what you look at on the internet. Friends, how much are we thinking about God sees everything and Jesus is going to judge the world? Brothers and sisters, pray that God would stamp these facts on our eyeballs. Pray that he would charge our hearts so that we might charge one another, just like Paul did to Timothy, with seriousness and sobriety when we're forgetting these soul-saving truths in our life. Here Paul raises the stakes for what Timothy must understand about his Christian witness, but also about his pastoral duties before the face of God. And now Paul writes a summary job description for what Timothy must do regardless of how people respond to his ministry. A job description of what Timothy must do to endure and remain faithful even if others bow out and become faithless around him. Beginning in verse 2, he lays forth five commands that are all related to one another. You might be asking, what are those five commands? Before the face of God, under the authority of God, and for the glory of God, Timothy was to, number one, preach the word. Preach the word. Herald the word. Proclaim aloud the word. Uh, The word, there, you see that uh, really small summary phrase? It's really just a summary statement of the gospel message. And then really by implication, the entirety of the Old and New Testament scriptures. And we know that from several places. So if you want to hold your spot there in chapter 4, turn back to chapter 2. Just real quickly, I want to show you this. Just teaching you how to study your Bible. How do we know what the Word is? Don't take my word for it. Look in the Word. 2 Timothy 2, look at verses 8 and 9. If Paul's telling Timothy to preach the Word, well, you got to find out what the Word is. 2 Timothy 2, 8 and 9, Paul says, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But did you notice what he says next? The word of God is not bound. Here Paul lumps the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God as one and the same. Now look over in chapter 3. I'm going to show you one other reference there. We looked at this last week, 2 Timothy 3, look at verses 14 to 17. Paul says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. What are the sacred writings? Look at verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out and here's the phrase you need to circle or underline. By who? By God. and Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul recharges Timothy's batteries here by pointing to the people who taught him the scriptures, which made him wise for salvation through faith in Christ. The very same scriptures that he just said are breathed out by God. Again it's just another way of saying the word or the word of God. The word for preach here is keurusso. And it means a message that is to be heralded, not whispered. Publicly proclaimed, not ashamed. Announced, not assumed with gravity and authority. Preaching therefore is not a lecture. Preaching is not a devotional. Preaching is not a dialogue with two friends. No, preaching is the weighty and worshipful proclamation of the word of God in the presence of God with the aim to convict, to convert, to equip, and to transform its hearers. There is absolutely nothing in this world like the preaching of the word of God. Nothing. That's why the most supernatural hour, the most special and precious hour or hours of the week are on the Lord's day in the Lord's house with the Lord's people worshiping the Lord of the book, the word of God. So let me put it more succinctly. At the top of the job description for Timothy, what is a preacher called and commanded by God Almighty to do. What are you praying, supporting, and paying me to do? He is to speak what God has spoken. That is the job of a preacher. He is to speak what God has spoken. Preaching, friends, is not a new idea it's been around for a long time. It's not a southern thing. It's not an Arkansan thing or an oaky thing. It's not an American thing. Friends, preaching has been going on a very long time, even all the way back to Jesus's own ministry on earth. Jesus's own ministry was engulfed in preaching. His miracles, love, and friendship, yes, were amazing and astounding, but it was his preaching that demonstrated his superior authority that thundered from his voice and shook the hearts and ears of his hearers. I mean, think about the longest recorded sermon in the Bible by Jesus. What do we see in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Have you ever noticed the very last two verses on that long day, that long sermon by Jesus? Matthew 7, 28 and 29, and when he had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. In fact, his ministry began with preaching about the kingdom of God and the gospel, Mark 1, 14 and 15, Mark, Matthew 9, 35, and even Jesus' last words to his disciples after he had resurrected from the dead and was about to ascend back to heaven, it was submerged with the language and the task of preaching. He told his own apostles who would represent him on earth as he ascended back into heaven, and the Spirit would come down and dwell within them. He would tell his apostles to continue the preaching ministry as they would bear witness for Christ in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Luke 24, 44 to 48, Acts 1 verse 8. Friends, this is precisely what we see through the 30-year history in the book of Acts. That's really what those 28 chapters are. They're 30 years of basically the early church's history. Do you know what the whole book of Acts is bookended with? Preaching. Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches the first Christian sermon from three Old Testament texts on the day of Pentecost. And what happens? the Spirit is poured out, and thousands come to faith in Christ. But then at the very very end of the book of Acts, Acts 28, 31, Paul is under house arrest in Rome. And what is he doing? Proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Friends, it wasn't just for the apostles, too. It wasn't just the apostles who were tasked with proclaiming, evangelizing, and spreading the word. It was all the Christians spreading the word and seeing it multiplied in the various spheres of life and their different gifts and roles and responsibilities both in the church and outside the church. You know, the apostles certainly set the tempo, though. In Acts chapter 6, Remember the passage where we see the church is growing? I mean, they're literally busting at the seams. Thousands are in the church in Jerusalem. I mean, that's like the first megachurch. But that megachurch actually practiced church discipline, so it could happen. But Acts chapter 6, these widows are being neglected in the daily distribution, and there's a problem. There's a potential church split about to happen. And so the apostles set apart seven men full of the spirit and wisdom to be the first proto-deacons. Why did they do that? Why did they create this division of labor and delegate to others to serve and take care of these widows? Acts 6, verses 2 to 4 tells us why. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Philip, who was among that first slate of proto-deacons to serve those tables, did you know that Philip was called an evangelist? He spread the gospel to Samaria, Acts chapter 8, Acts 21, and yet we also read of everyday normal Christians spreading the word of God wherever they went. Acts 8 verse 4 might be a good one you think about this week. Acts 8 verse 4 tells us those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Those aren't apostles. Those weren't evangelists. Those were everyday Christians. No wonder when Paul is writing to the Romans, and he's wanting to garner support from them, to take the gospel to places they had never known. The book of Romans is really just setting up for us both a systematic theology and what God has done for us in Christ, but it's also a missionary letter. Giving the people of God an urgency that you may not go to the unreached people group, but we are all to be joining as partners for that mission. And know what he says in Acts chapter, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 10, 14 to 17. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Friends, that's the preached word of Christ. The rest of the New Testament is filled, it is saturated with the importance of preaching in the life of the church. And it's just even the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, they all emphasize the same exact importance on preaching and teaching God's word. But friends, it's not even just the Bible. We've got 2,000 plus years of church history to look at. Church history is no different. From the second century to today, those who hold a high view of the scriptures, those who believe in the sovereignty of God and how God uses the preached word and prayer to convert sinners continue today to uphold this task. Weak and unhealthy churches are usually the result of weak and unhealthy pulpits. Strong and healthy churches are always the result of strong and healthy pulpits. That's why every church where you find the word of God preached with power, with authority, with clarity, before the face of God, it will be most acutely felt by its hearers that God is among us. J.I. Packer once said, Holy Scripture should be thought of as God-preaching. God preaching to me every time I read or hear any part of it. God the Father preaching God the Son in the power of God the Holy Ghost. God the Father is the giver of Holy Scripture. God the Son is the theme of Holy Scripture. And God the Spirit, as the Father's appointed agent in witnessing to the Son, is the author, the authenticator, and interpreter of Holy Scripture. What does that mean for us? The less Bible we hear in our preaching, the less we will hear from God. The more Bible we hear in our preaching, the more we will hear from our God. The pulpit is not something to trifle with. It's not a hobby. It's not a stepping stone for some man's career. It's not a place for a man to hide and live a double life. Some have called the pulpit the sacred desk doesn't look all that sacred right now. It's plastic. It's black. I'm using it as a metaphor from the word that right now is standing above us. What else must Paul inform Timothy to do in his preaching ministry? What must characterize my preaching here at CCBC or any pulpit of any local church that claims to be a Christian church? Well, he mentions a few more pastoral duties. Do you see where he's going? He must, number two, be ready in season and out of season. He must be ready in season and out of season. You know what I love this part of the word studies for some folks that just get all excited? It literally means be on standby, ready at a moment's notice. About 12 years ago, I was on a two week mission trip with a church I was a part of in Savannah, Georgia, and we went to the Philippines a so long ways away from savannah georgia let's just put it that way 30 hours of travel in a third world country in the middle of the jungle or at least that part of the jungle was third world country i remember getting on the back of a jeepney they thought i played in the nba not because i was good just because i was tall and i was on the back of the bus and i stood out and pastor johnny looked at me and said hey brother blake i said what's up pastor johnny hey you want to preach I said, uh, when? Yeah, sure, in 15 minutes. Really? What am I going to preach on? Whatever you want. So I'm going, how long's this bus ride? So in the midst of about a 30, 30, maybe 30 minute bus ride in the jungles, I get off and I'm like, I'm just going to preach my quiet time. That morning I was in Mark 10 with a rich young ruler. Here I am as a middle upper class white dude from Georgia in the middle of a jungle with people who lived in mud huts Sitting there listening to me preach on the Rich Young Euler. Well, one thing I will be sure of is I'm glad I had a quiet time that morning. I had to be ready at a moment's notice. But the emphasis here is not just being ready at a moment's notice. Did you notice he says be ready in season and out of season? That means every circumstance, every season of life and ministry, God throws at you, Timothy. God throws at you, preacher. You must be ready to deliver the word. That's when your weeks are great and your weeks are terrible. When people love you and when people hate you. When people say kind things about you and very unkind things about you. That's why he says in season and out of season. In other words, when hordes of people are coming to your church, hungry and excited to hear you preach the word, preach it. And when people are starting to leave the church, unhappy, grumpy, discontent, angry, or simply disinterested in hearing the word preached by you, a man called of God to this solemn task must preach with the same level of carefulness, faithfulness, and commitment Regardless of how many bodies are in the building. Friends, I have preached in front of a thousand people before, and I have preached in front of 12 people before. It's not the number that matters, it's souls that need Jesus. And that's why this text always stays on my mind be ready in season and out of season. Friends, pray that I would be on standby and ready to preach regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the number of people sitting in these chairs or pews and regardless of whoever is in the room. Preach the word. Paul then moves on after seeing, be ready in season and out of season. And he says, what will be required of you in your preaching? Notice what he says in number three, reprove. Reprove. It means to convict, to refute, and to admonish. It means to show someone the error of their ways, their beliefs, their attitudes, their actions, maybe even their church ministry practices. He goes on to say rebuke, number four. Rebuke. It's stronger in connotations. The same word used of Jesus rebuking the demons and telling them to be quiet. It's the same word of Jesus rebuking Peter and saying, Get behind me, Satan. Speak no further. It's the same word of Jesus telling the storms and waves in, at the sea to quiet and be calm. Typically in Scripture, it means to tell someone to close their mouth. Stop doing something that is sinful or wrong. It means to say, No, that's enough. You need to repent. Repent and turn to God. Then he says, number five, exhort. Exhort. This could be a broad term that encompasses encouragement, stirring up believers to love and good deeds, putting an arm around them and giving them a word of comfort. I love you. I'm for you. I'm with you. I can see God working in your life. You see, friends, what Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, faithful expositors of God's word must be able to preach the word when people want to hear it and when they don't want to hear it. He must be a faithful expositor who preaches the word and reprove and rebuke the congregation when they're off, when they're wrong, when they're heading in a wrong direction. That's why a man filling the pulpit must fear God more than he fears man. He must fear God before anyone else in his life. He must be more concerned about his people's holiness before God than even their happiness with him. Did you hear that? You should want out of your pastor and elders our desire to see you presented as holy and above reproach before Christ on the last day more than your temporary happiness or unhappiness with us. Because on that day, it will not matter what you feel about me. On that day, it will be matter what Christ says about you. Jesus said some hard words about man-pleasing preachers who stay away from the hard stuff lowly and meek Jesus said this, Luke 6, 26, woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. You know what marks a false prophet or a disqualified minister of the gospel from the Old and New Testament? It's very clear. You give people what they want, but not what they need. You say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. You say, just let bygones be bygones, but you sweep sin under the rug and don't deal with it. William Gurnall gives his observation to why so many pulpits today lack reproving and rebuking components, both in his day and in our day. Listen to what he says. Preach without the fear of man. There is nothing more unworthy than to see people bold to sin and the preacher afraid to reprove them. Preach with a good conscience. Keep a clear conscience. He cannot be a bold reprover who is not a conscientious liver. Such a one must speak softly for fear of waking his own guilty conscience. Unholiness in the preacher's life either will stop his mouth from reproving or the people's ears from receiving. Oh, how harsh a sound does a cracked bell make in the ears of its auditors. Members of CCBC, one thing you can pray for me. Some of you already do this. You want to know how you can pray for me? Pray that I would fear God. Pray that I would have boldness to speak what God has spoken. Pray that I would live with a clear conscience. I'm a sinner just like you. I am tempted to sin just like you. I have works of the flesh making war on my soul sometimes in intense because I'm special, but because the enemy knows I'm in leadership. You and I need Jesus together. And we need to help one another make it home to glory. Please pray and continue to pray. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said this of Jesus, Jesus never changed his gospel to make it suit people. Change people to make them fit his gospel, but preachers should also encourage the saints in sermons too. Men and women will not be won to the truth by simply scolding them. No one will be persuaded to repent by intimidating them. Review what is preached and taught in the pulpit, and it must be advocated by the members in the pews, being protagonists in advocates who are encouragements to the body of Christ even amidst all the corrections and rebukes Paul off parents your letters he normally bookended those letters with words of affirmation and love parents you already understand this with your kids right if your home is filled with correction and no's and stop it's and not now's and nevers and that's it we'll have a very well tidy house but it'll be drudgery but if our kids know we love them even while upholding boundaries and encourage them twice as much, friends, in our homes, and our churches, will thrive. We need correction, we need reproof, and we need encouragement. Responding to the reproves and rebukes God has brought in your life is God's way. How are you doing in responding to things God's bringing up through his word, through the preached word, through the red word, How are you doing with that? How are you doing in offering loving encouragement to the body of Christ around you, exhorting them, comforting them, reminding them of ways they see Christ working in them? Friends, we're all in different places in our spiritual walks, aren't we? And God knows exactly the word we need at any given moment. Uh, The Puritan William Perkins knew this well as a preacher. He said in his book, The Art of Prophesying, you'll find seven different types of people listening to your sermons on any given Sunday. Number one, unbelievers who are both ignorant and unteachable. Number two, not humbled, teachable, but still ignorant. Number three, some who have knowledge but are not humbled. Number four, some who are humbled. Number five, some are believers Number six, some are fallen. And then he just kind of concludes there in verse 10. It's just a mingled people. That's why Paul concludes there in verse two with a type of persistent long-suffering and perseverance that sound teaching requires. If Timothy's gonna be effective over the long haul in the Lord's service. Did you notice what he says there at the end of verse two? With complete patience and teaching. One word of advice for everyone, including myself. People can change, people do change, and people will grow by the grace of God. But spiritual growth is often very, very slow. Pray that God would make each one of us relentless in our commitment and resolve God's forbearance with other people's weaknesses and sin. Hasn't God been, pa- been patient with us? We should show the same to others. Paul makes it clear to Timothy that pastors must preach the word regardless if people want to hear it or not. People's feelings, opinions, or interests do not dictate the pulpit. God's word does. But Paul also had to convey a sad reality that was true in Paul's day, in Timothy's day, and boy, it is true in our day. Friends, not everyone will be for you. Not everyone will be for your church, for your family, for your ministry, and not everyone will be for sound preaching over the long haul. Look at me at verses 3. When people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves some passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Here Paul envisions a time, uh, both in the future and really, that people in his congregation will not endure They will not tolerate. They will not put up with. They will no longer be pleased with sound teaching. But why? Paul says they will find teachers. They will seek out preachers who will tell them what they want to hear and give them whatever their hearts desire. Ear ticklers, Paul says. Pastor, do you know any ear tickler preachers? pastor confession time and know who that is when i was 19 years old i was introduced to joel osteen you don't have to raise your hand to know who that is i would hope you don't but we are in confession time so this is for sure with his wife victoria at lakewood church get all the scare quotes down please in houston texas being a more naive tv that led me to buy his book from walmart that had come out your life now After reading it, I bought a few copies to give people. I began quoting Joel Osteen, sharing the book with some of my friends about Joel Osteen, why I liked his stuff. But even as I read his book and listened to his sermons, in the back of my mind and in the bottom of my young, naive, 19-year-old Christian soul, I knew something wasn't right. The book had little mentioning of sin, Little mentioning of God's wrath, almost no mentioning of repentance, dying to self, suffering for Christ, and carrying your cross. There was a whole lack fulfilling my dreams if I only have faith enough to believe God did good to me. I was going through intense, eternal problems in my life where I needed encouragement. And in God's providence, in his mysterious providence, I was exposed to that man's ear-tickling ministry. Why was it so appealing? Why did I buy the book, read it, and talk about it, take the bait, hook, line, and sinker? I Because he spoke what I wanted to hear. He promised me whatever my heart desired. But friends, it's not only what a man preaches, that is the only thing to Benny Hinn or evaluate. False teachers can say true things. Benny Hinn can preach the gospel. It's what the preacher or teacher isn't teach year-in that's revealing a lot more. It's what isn't being covered in the sermons year in and year out, in the Bible studies year in and year out that we need to pay attention to. Friends, you and I could be listening to an ear tickler and not even realize it. You could be a member of a church for years, a well-known church, a well-respected church, for even decades, under a nice man who said true things, but deliberately neglected the heavier and more controversial passages that are inspired of God. That's John one To test the spirits to see whether they are from God or not. First, John, four, 1 John one, we We're called to be diligent Bereans who study and examine everything we hear with the scriptures. Acts 17. Friends, why is it so important that every Christian show discernment with who we listen to? Why is it so important for members of this congregation to hold a high view of Scripture and a holy reverence for the pulpit? Because without it, God's glory. Without it, we're not being reproved, rebuked, corrected in accordance with the word to show us our need for Christ. Without it, the word of God is. Without the word of God being preached with authority over our lives, all we're hearing is the words of men. And that's spiritually dangerous, folks. And that's precisely what marks a false teacher, a false prophet, or an ear tickler who's disqualified from the office. He might be nice, he might have an education from a seminary, he might be engaging and funny, and he can be all that and more, but he is not fulfilling his God-ordained role. If he's not living out, 2 Timothy 4, verses 1, to 5, above God's word is putting himself in the place of God. After all, the church has not brought the word of God into being, it is God's word that has brought the church into being. Friends, this is a subtle downfall, isn't it? To no longer want to hear sound teaching, to no longer tolerate it, bear it up, or even want it. Friends, no one calls themselves a Christian, gets baptized, joins the church, and then decides to walk away from That's because Paul says the spiritual erosion begins in people's hearts. Did you see what he said there? They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Friends, that's why we need the word. Only the word can heal our hearts. Only the word can deliver us and rescue us from ourselves. You see, the fundamental problem with our loves we to always find time to do what we really want to do. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For the world, the deceitfulness of riches, by the temptation to do everything to our life, by everyone, have everything. It's because we're all prone to wander. As the old hymn writer says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God of love. So in the midst of an easily distracted world where we are easily tempted and prone to statistics, how do we become a faithful Christian who's not another statistic in Satan's lies? A few words of counsel. Number one, stay humble. Stay humble. There but for the grace of God go I the moment we begin looking down self-righteously on someone else's sin or poor choices, that's the moment we forget that it's only by the grace of God we stand. You and I are still Christians because of Jesus's grip on us, not our grip on him. Number two, stay committed to studying the Bible. Stay committed to studying the Bible. Study for your own sake. Don't take people that is revealing. Almost right. Faithful expositors will seek to teach the whole counsel of God, not just the people's favorite verses. Number three, join a church with sound preaching and attend it regularly. Join a church with sound preaching and attend it regularly. About eight years ago, Julie and I are living proof that God honors and rewards keeping his church as a priority. Eight years ago, Julie and I literally packed up our bags with our two kids at the time, drove eight hours north of Savannah, Georgia to our nation's capital, not to run for office, but to join a tremendously good and healthy gospel-preaching church. Why am I telling you that this morning? I would not be in Fort Smith today if we didn't take that act of obedience eight years ago to leave Georgia to go there. Why did we leave Georgia to go there? Because there was a solid, trusted God to provide what we need that we were like-minded with and we trusted God to provide what we needed, put His church not as a backseat priority, but as a top one. Friends, that might mean moving closer to the church or where their members live. That might mean turning down a job a home to leave a good church. That might mean desir- buying a less desirable home if that means being more around the members in the weekly cycle of ministry in that church. This will look different for every church member. And God does call us away. But I have seen God's hand firsthand. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and the Lord will take care of whatever needs we have. Number four, be thankful to God for sound preaching and tell others about it. Be thankful to God for sound preaching and tell others about it. Friends, gossip about sound preaching. Talk about it. If you hear a good Solomon, tell someone better and so forth. Boast in the Lord by telling others about it. And friends, anytime God speaks to us through his word, we should thank God for his word to us. Beloved, the pulpit leads the church. The pulpit protects. Friends, the, the pulpit guides the church when the word is governing the church. Friends, the pulpit must be the throne where the word of God reigns. The pulpit must be the throne where the word of God reigns. Ever give Timothy as reminders of what he must do even after he's gone? Look at me in verse 5. Always be sober minded. He says, As for you, always be sober minded, endure suffering. In essence, Paul tells Timothy this Timothy, remain clear headed a lot is at stake. Don't get too discouraged, and don't get too distracted. Stay sober-minded. He then says, endure suffering. Don't quit. Don't quit when it's hard. People are counting on you. Christ will hold you fast. Christ will not quit on you. Do the work of an evangelist. Preach Christ and not yourself, Timothy. Show people Jesus and get out of the way. Be a gospel-lizer, both to believers and unbelievers. You know what it basically means? Do your job. Do your job well and get the job done. CCBC, the elders and I need your prayers. We are unified, we are excited, and we are encouraged in shepherding this flock. But we do need It is hard work. Kent Hughes says you must preach the word in its historical setting and in the context of the whole Bible, making the appropriate biblical connections and discerning all the ways it is a revelation of Jesus. That is why you must perspire in the study and sweat in the pulpit. Well, I've got that last part taken care of. Thank you, Jeff, for the fan. Charles Spurgeon once humbly acknowledged, my sermons are a great drain upon me mentally, but still the springs are not dried. In times of great exhaustion, fresh streams bubble up. Preaching and pastoring is also heart work. It's heart work. People rarely change quickly. It requires much patience and teaching. Friends, pray that all men who preach from this pulpit would be described as the 16th century martyr Hugh Latimer, who they said about him, he spoke from the heart, and his words went to the heart. Preaching and pastoring is a solemn and sanctifying work. It's a solemn and sanctifying work. The great forerunner of the Reformation, John Wycliffe, said that the highest service that men may attain on earth is to preach the word of God. John Stott said preaching is indispensable to Christianity. Without preaching, a necessary part of its authenticity has been lost. No wonder Richard Baxter plainly put it this way. It is not a small matter to stand up in the face of a congregation and deliver a message as from the living God in the name of our Redeemer. Preaching and pastoring is a sanctifying work. It is a sanctifying work. It is for sanctifying for me. I'm getting drilled all week in the text. And once a man has been drilled by the text, sanctified by the text, then he can preach with power to see his congregants sanctified by the text too. Cotton Mather once said, the great design and intention of the office of a Christian preacher are to restore the throne and dominion of God in the souls of men. Preaching and pastoring is a noble work. It is a noble work. Alexander White admonished a discouraged minister one day he said, never think of giving up preaching. The angels around the throne envy you in your great work. Preaching and pastoring is a sobering work. It is a sobering work. H.B. Charles once said, hey preacher, you have a limited number of sermons to preach before you die. Make them count. Every Sunday could be someone's last sermon they will ever hear, including the preacher's. And preaching and pastoring is vital soul care work. Listen carefully to what Richard Baxter says. If it is in your power, live under a faithful, searching, serious, powerful minister, and diligently attend his public and private teaching. Though God can work without means, it is his ordinary way to work by means, and we should not neglect duty upon a presumptuous expectation of a miraculous or extraordinary work. Alas, how apt are the best to cool if they are not kept warm by a powerful ministry. Young Christians who are weak and inexperienced above all others should be desirous of help from an able, faithful guide. Let the judgment of your pastor or judicious friend about the state of your souls be much regarded by you, though it is not infallible. Friends, regardless of who you are and where you're at today, hear those last exhortations from Paul to Timothy to you. Always be sober-minded. Keep a clear head about yourself. Endure suffering. Don't quit. Jesus won't quit on you. Do the work of an evangelist. Preach Christ, not yourself fulfill your ministry do whatever job god has given you to do and do it well and get the job done until jesus takes us home the need of sound preaching of the word of god is ever more present than as it was is today we need it gripping our hearts And governing our church. Let's pray. Father, you are present. And one day Jesus is coming back to judge the whole world. And so we pray you would make us a faithful gospel preaching church that continues to grow, persevere in reproving and rebuking and exhorting one another. That you would protect us from listening to ear ticklers and preserve us to love the truth. Or give us the strength and wisdom, we pray, to fulfill whatever you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen.